Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by grace and virtue, by which have been given to us his exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to. We're thankful that God the Holy Spirit, along with you and the Son, indwell us. And that God the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates our thinking, helps us to see what the, and understand what your word has uh, communicated to us, and then he is the one who uses that, brings it to our memory for application. Father, we're thankful that God the Holy Spirit who revealed these things through the writers of Scripture uh, to us is the same one who helps us understand it. And Father, it takes time, and sometimes we get bored with it, but it is the process of spiritual growth is a lifetime process, always pursuing uh, perfection and hoping that somehow along the way we achieve excellence. But all of that is just due to you, and we pray that we might persevere in our reading, our study of Scripture, our application of it, that you might in some ways use us to bring glory to yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and today we're going to have a bit of a review. As we have gone through Ephesians in the last uh, couple of years, there have been two previous sections that have dealt with the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We go back to the first chapter. Uh, we recognize that in verses 13 and 14, the emphasis was on the Holy Spirit, his ministry of sealing us. And the ministry of his sealing is a ministry where he marks us as being owned by God. We are his possession, and as such, we cannot... Uh, escape that. We cannot lose our salvation. We are saved not because of anything we did, but because of who Christ is. And because of who he is, he keeps us until the day of redemption. Anyone who thinks that they can do something to lose their salvation or to cause that mark of ownership to be eradicated is assuming a couple of false things. The first thing they're assuming is that they can commit a sin that is too great for the grace of God, a sin that somehow Christ could not pay for. The second thing is they are assuming that God forgot to pay for a specific sin and that they have committed that sin. 
there are sins that have greater consequences on our souls and sins that have greater consequences in our lives than other sins. But all sin is sin. All sin is essentially any thought, word, or act that violates the character and the righteousness of God. And as such, he has to uh, bring judgment on that sin. But on the cross, Christ bore our punishment, Scripture says, in his own body. There was no sin that was forgotten. There was no sin that was too great for the grace of God. And because Christ paid for all sin, that issue is no longer an issue. Colossians chapter 2 verses 12 to 14 tell us that that certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. That did not happen when we trusted Christ. That happened at the cross in 33. It was nailed to the cross so that in that we have uh, forgiveness, that is a judicial forgiveness that eradicates that indictment against us. It doesn't save us, though. In order to be saved, we still have to be transformed from spiritual death into spiritual life, and we have to receive the righteousness of Christ. That comes when we accept the gospel, when we trust in Christ as our Savior, when we believe he died as our substitute, and only that uh, is the basis for our transformation. We are regenerated and we receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, two things that we will mention briefly today. And we receive that sealing of the God, the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee of, the, of our inheritance. That's the first chapter. In the second chapter, in the second half of the second chapter, we learn that it is also through the God, the Holy Spirit, that we have access to the Father. As a child of God who's trusted in Christ as Savior, we're adopted into God's royal family, and we are put into the body of Christ. That is the, the whole issue we spent so much time on approximately a year ago, going through the teaching in the uh, for, from the 14th verse down to the 22nd verse of chapter 2, where we are told that when we trust Christ as Savior, that all those in this church age, because Christ made peace between Jew and Gentile and made peace between the Jew and Gentile and God, that now those who trust in him have peace and access by one spirit to the Father. Now, approximately a year ago, pretty close. And I was surprised because when I was uh, preparing for this morning, because as we get into our the next two or three verses, the focus again is on God the Holy Spirit and his ministry to us. And because I continue to think consistently, I thought, well, we probably need to review the ministries of God the Holy Spirit. And so I searched on the website to find out when I did it again, and I was surprised it was just about a year ago. Now, most of you, some of you weren't even here. Some of you were only watching via uh, live stream, and some of you did neither. 
And so, and some of you have just forgotten what that meant because you haven't studied this 20 or 30 times like others of you have. So some of you need a reminder, and I have reshaped and am reshaping a few things and bringing in a, new, a few new ideas. And others of you need to hear this about 15 or 20 more times to begin to comprehend the value of God the Holy Spirit in our life as believers. Now, there's probably no doctrine that was more perverted, distorted, and corrupted in the 20th century than the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. Tuesday night, maybe not this week, but by the next week in our study of Judges, we will be talking about Othniel, the first judge, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, so that means that we have to study some things about the role of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So that's a preview of coming attractions. And uh, we'll get into more about the Holy Spirit in chapter 5 as we learn about being filled by the Spirit. So all of this is really important. And I am amazed still running into people who I think ought to know better because I know that some of them were taught better because they've sat under my ministry and they're still real fuzzy and confused on some of these ideas, which is understandable because we've often heard some of these things taught with less than precise vocabulary and I'm as guilty, have been as guilty in the past as others in some ways. And it is built on the fact that we have poor translations that have brought us certain phrases that aren't really accurate. And so when we think with inaccurate vocabulary, uh, it causes our concepts and our thinking to be somewhat fuzzy. So we're going to be reviewing uh, several things uh, this morning. Last time we looked at verse 3, which should be translated uh, to maintain, maintaining. That's the idea there. No, or excuse me, here it, it, uh, it is being diligent being diligent to keep, working to keep, putting forth every effort to keep. That's that word spudazzo. And to keep has the idea not to create the unity, but to maintain the unity, that the unity that we have in Christ is a foundational unity that was created by God the Holy Spirit and it is at the very core of the what it means to be in the body of Christ. This is the church, that we are created as new creatures in Christ, and at that instant, there is a unity. What destroys unity is arrogance. We don't have to create the unity. We have to maintain the unity, and we have to maintain the unity without compromising the truth of the Scriptures. That is why in verse 4, there's the emphasis on one body. That's foundational to understand what, we're, what this section is built on. In the verse 5, where the focus is on uh, the Lord, there is the emphasis on one faith. Now, if you look at Christianity around the world, 
and you think of one faith, at an initial glance, it looks like, well, they're a long way from that, aren't they? There's Some people have estimated 100,000 different denominations around the world. But that can be broken down. It's not quite that bad. A lot of it is because you have national or state churches, state denominations, things of that nature, other places there are significant doctrinal errors and departures, which is why one group has split from another group. Some of them are significant, and it is necessary to divide from those who hold to false doctrine. But in other cases, it is simply a matter of arrogance. In the United States, there's an estimate of some 33,000 different denominations. In fact, probably shake your head at that. When, um, in fact, if you go back to early part of the 17th century and through the 17th century, there weren't that many denominations in the United States or even in Western civilization. You had uh, up until the 11th century, you had basically... Catholic Christianity. It had become Roman Catholic by then, but that was it. You just had one denomination. You had a few groups, and it was there were a lot of differences uh, in that Catholic Church. And then you had the Protestant Reformation that came along in the 16th century, beginning with Luther 1517. But this tended to develop state churches because aside from the Anabaptist, everybody else believed in a state church. So they had a, a close connection between the state government and the, and Christianity. And so you had Germany was Lutheran. Sweden was Lutheran. Denmark was Lutheran. Uh, France was still basically Catholic, but with the, uh, Beginnings of the Reformation, you had the development of French Protestants who were called Huguenots. And if, but, but the state church for France has continued to be uh, Roman Catholic. In uh, Austria, it's Roman Catholic. In other places, in Czechoslovakia, they, there was a strong shift toward Protestantism, and they were the descendants of Jan Hus. So you, and in England, you had the development of the Anglican Church. So these were state churches, and some people from each of those different groups came over to what became the United States. And so you ha- now had Swedish Lutherans, and you had German Lutherans, and you had Danish Lutherans, and you had various other state Lutherans, and they all kept maintained their denominations. So over here, you just didn't have Lutherans. You now had about six or seven denominations because of where they came from. Same thing with uh, Presbyterians and Calvinists and other things. So, And then they started splitting in the 19th century due to liberalism. What do you mean by one faith? What the scriptures mean by one faith is the Bible teaches one consistent view of God and of man and of the cross and anything and salvation and anything that depart from that is off. There is one faith, and we don't compromise it, and it's in the Scripture. So we have to stand there because without that one faith, the unity that some Christians think they have 
is a meaningless unity because if you can believe anything you want to and have a unity, then there's nothing distinctive whatsoever, and it's no longer truly Christianity. So we are to maintain, be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and that means we have to teach the Word of God so people understand what the Word of God says because that is the one faith. So there's an interconnection between each of these things that are listed here, the body of Christ, one spirit, because he's the one who uh, revealed the word through the uh, apostles and prophets. He is the one who indwells each and every one of us. He is the one who is forming the body of Christ so there's one spirit, and so it, he relates to one body. He relates to the hope of our calling. He relates to our faith and because he's the one who revealed it, and he relates to baptism. So all of these singularities that are mentioned here in 4 through 6 are all interconnected, and it seems to me that a major part of it has to do with the role of God, the Holy Spirit. So this idea of unity in 4.3 is, I went to several passages last time, is restated by Paul in many places, but it cannot survive on arrogance. And when there is arrogance, there is always the focus on me first, and what I think Scripture says versus what you think Scripture says, instead of both of us humbling ourselves to study the Scriptures, to come to an understanding of what God revealed, not what we want Him to reveal or think He should have revealed. And so you have this emphasis, and that then becomes the basis for our application. Philippians one twenty seven, Paul says, "...only let your conduct," that's application, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he means by walking worthy. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. That's unity. And that is based on the word of God. That's going to be based on the one singular faith that is revealed in the scriptures. Stand fast in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith that is the doctrinal content of the gospel. It's not, faith, is, faith can speak of the act of believing, but it also is used to talk about the content of what we believe. And so that content of what we believe is what's talked about by the phrase one faith or the phrase here, the faith of the gospel, the faith that is related to the gospel. Philippians 2.2, 2, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. That's unity, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now, we're going to be studying Philippians when I finish Second Peter, and I'll probably finish Second Peter in somewhere between four to eight weeks. So Philippians is coming, just a view of coming attractions. Philippians 3.16, Paul says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. This isn't a counterfeit unity for the sake of unity. This is a unity based upon a conviction of the truth of God's word. 
And so in verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk for as you have us for a pattern. So in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, we read, There is one body, that's the body of Christ. It's not the body of believers that meets at West Houston Bible Church or another body of believers that meets in Sugarland, or body of believers that meets in Tomball and others in Houston and whatever. There's one body. We are just one manifestation of that body of Christ. Most who are members of the body of Christ are already in heaven. Others are alive today, and we are, uh, God is adding to the body every day with new believers. There's one body and one spirit, and it is God the Holy Spirit who is forming or, or, use, or has an integral and intimate uh, role in forming that body. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So that the foundational unity is this act that takes place at the instant of salvation. It's not an experiential act. We don't feel anything. It is a legal act that God the Father performs. Jesus Christ is the one who performs the action of the baptism because he is the head of the body. He's the authority of the body. And he uses God the Holy Spirit in order to affect that union. Now, what I've just said is about as precise as I think it can get, but there's very few who understand it. But we're going to work through that some this morning. So what we have studied is that the Bible talks about our relationship to God in terms of two aspects. One's the eternal realities. This is what is also, we could call this the legal realities. They're based upon things that God does in terms of conformity to his law. They are positional, they're legal, they do not, they're not experiential, and they don't change once we're saved. Temporal realities have to do with our day-to-day spiritual life. Some days we're walking with the Lord, some days we're not. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are identified with him, Paul says in Romans 6, through what we call the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is where I'm headed this morning if I get there. A phrase that is correctly stated there, but is so often misstated or wrongly stated or wrongly translated uh, in the scriptures. And then we have our temporal walk where when we are walking in the light, we're being filled by the Holy Spirit. We're abiding by the Spirit. This is what we call fellowship or walking by the Spirit. Now, in relation to this passage then, we need to talk a little bit about and be reminded of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. This morning, if I am efficient, which I may not be, we're going to talk about the first two which, are the, which relate to the role of God the Holy Spirit to unbelievers. God the Holy Spirit is constantly working in the world toward unbelievers 
to bring them to an understanding of the gospel and to salvation. And he is also working to restrain evil. And some of you look around and go, well, I don't know that he's doing a great job right now, the way things are going. Well, let's take some of the darkest places on the earth, and it would be a thousand times worse than that if God the Holy Spirit weren't restraining evil. And that will be evident when we get to that period of Daniel, called Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation that comes after, after the rapture. So we're going to look at the first two, the restraining ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit directed to unbelievers. And then we will look at the first two things that he does in relation to believers in the church age, and that's regeneration and then the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And I've gone through these in detail. You can go back to about Lessons 77 through 83 or 4 in the Ephesians series and get more detail but since I've gone through this a lot, I just want to summarize these fairly rapidly and spend most of the time talking about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8, Paul gives us some insights about the coming of the day of the Lord. Perk up your ears. If you've been following on 2 Peter 3, we will be coming back to this, this passage and day of the Lord is mentioned in verses 3 and 4 just before this, where Paul says that the day of the Lord does not come until the Antichrist, the beast, the first beast of Revelation, is revealed. Then the day of the Lord begins, and he says to the Thessalonians, so don't worry about it, but he goes on to say, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul tells him he was only there a short time, maybe two months. He taught them a lot. And part of what he taught them that was important was God's plan for the ages, dispensations, eschatology, what the plan was. And he says, and now you, now you know, because of what I taught before, what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. And what is restraining is a reference to God the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The restraining ministry of God the Holy Spirit isn't to prevent evil from, from being developed and expanding throughout the world system but it's to keep it from being as bad as it could be. He now restrains, he'll do so until he is taken out of the way. Well, when does that happen? Well, that happens at the rapture because right now God the Holy Spirit is indwelling every church member and indwelling the church as a whole, and that is one of the ways in which he restrains evil. And so when he is taken out of the way at the rapture, then the lawless one will be revealed. That's Paul's term here for the one called Antichrist. He's only referenced Antichrist once, and that's in 1 John. There are other terms for him, the prince who is to come. Uh, Daniel talks about him as the, the little horn who takes over the uh, revived Roman Empire, and there are various other terms for him. 
and the lawless one is the term here. He's the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Second Thess 2, 6, and 7, I just talked about, used as the word restrain, and it is the, this is the Greek word which katiko, which means to prevent the doing of something or cause it to be ineffective. So the evil is Satan's attempt to establish his rule and reign on the planet through the Antichrist. And so that is ultimately what is being restrained. And just a warning, through every generation, there's someone who appears to be a great candidate to be the Antichrist. And throughout the last centuries, going back into the early Middle Ages, there's always some some people coming along saying, this person is going to be the Antichrist, that person, it's the Pope, it's this person, it's Ronald Wilson Reagan, because each one of his names had six letters, that's 666, so that was him. You know, there's all kinds of things that, that people come up with, uh, but the reality is he is not revealed until until after the rapture. But there's always somebody that's ready. Why? Satan has no more of an idea of when the rapture is going to occur than you do or I do. And so he has to always have somebody waiting in the wings to get out on stage when the curtain opens. And he's just waiting for that curtain to be open so he can push uh, his man out into the center. So com- uh, restraining is a work of God's common grace. God the Holy Spirit restrains evil and lawlessness during the church age in order to provide stable environments for evangelism, spiritual growth, and missions. The Holy Spirit restrains through government, through the presence of the church, through thwarting Satan and his designs, through individual conscience, and providential prevention of the evil plans of human beings. There are conspiracies today that you have no idea about, and neither do I, and they're never going to come to fruition. You will read all kinds of them on the Internet, but they will never get any traction unless God the Holy Spirit stops restraining. So you can always get... I don't understand people who get caught up with all these conspiracies. It just wastes a lot of time, get your energy and focus off into something else. Satan always has a thousand and one conspiracies in in operation because he's hoping that at any moment God's going to have the rapture and he's going to need those organizations and people in place to put his man forward. So why do we waste time looking at that? It's not going to get anywhere until God gives the go. So that's the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit. Second ministry toward the world, the unbelieving world, is convicting. Jesus talks about this in John 16, 7 through 11. Now, this is really important because what this tells us is what God the Holy Spirit is doing behind the scenes when you're trying to witness to somebody. 
God the Holy Spirit is trying to focus on doing three things, and most people haven't a clue. And so when they're giving the gospel, they're giving all kinds of irrelevant and wrong information, and we're not giving the Holy Spirit the tools he needs to use to convict somebody of, of the, gospel, the need for the gospel. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you, he's talking to his disciples in the upper room just before he gets to Gethsemane. He's on the way to Gethsemane, actually. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the God, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, uh, the encourager, those are various ways in which that is translated, The helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So that tells us that God the Son is involved in sending the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to do three things. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to convict the world of sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, Christ is going to tell us. And second, of righteousness. And third, of judgment. Well, that seems pretty vague, but he gets more precise. In verse uh, 9, he says, Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. So what he means by convict is pretty simple. The word is the word elenko, which means to bring something to light, to expose it, uh, to send something forth, to convict or convince someone. And in some passages, it even has the idea of punishing or some sort of discipline. And it really has the idea of proving something, giving forth the evidence that something is true. And it has a legal background where it relates to declaring Uh, the guilt of someone who has committed a criminal offense. And so it has that idea of persuasion, of, of exposing the truth. So that's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, that doesn't mean we just pull out our Bible and shoot our gospel gun at people and quote Acts 16 and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what salvation is, and they don't have a clue what believe means. They don't know who God is and why they need to be saved. Uh, Jesus had already, all I mean, Paul, excuse me, Paul had, all that had already been evident within the framework of Paul's ministry in Ephesus And so by the time he said that to the Ephesian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't have to go into all of that. That had already, that foundation had already been established. But we need to be able to explain, help people understand who God is, that there is only one God and he's not part of his creation. He is perfectly righteous and that's the standard for a relationship with him. And that human beings are sinners. We violated the righteousness of God, so we are under condemnation. But God, in his grace and out of his love, sent his son to become a human being, to die on the cross for us, and to pay the penalty for sin, so that all that is left for us to do is to trust in him. We give those tools. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who uses that information to convict the 
unbeliever to expose his need for salvation and to demonstrate the veracity of our claims. That doesn't mean that we don't get involved in explanations related to apologetics. We're to give an answer, Peter says, of the, for the hope that is within us to anyone who asks. So we need to be able to explain why we believe what we believe and why it is true. And God the Holy Spirit uses that. So he convicts the world of sin. That's the main thing. Now, this isn't to convict the individual that he is a terrible sinner and he has committed so many horrible things in his life, but to demonstrate what sin is, that sin is any act, word, thought, or statement that violates the righteousness of God and that we're all sinners. We all come under condemnation because of that. And God the Holy Spirit is going to use that. And as uh, Jesus says in as he goes on into, uh, in verse 18, or verse 8, he's convicting the world of sin because we have to know what we're, why we're saved and how we were saved, and that means bringing sin into the picture, but it's not to expose all the sins that a person has to repent. Never are we told to repent of our sin to be saved. In fact, in John 3.18, Jesus or probably by this time it's John talking, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. They're spiritually dead, and they're under condemnation for uh, eternal punishment. All they have to do is believe. He who does not believe doesn't say he who has sinned, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The issue is belief at this point. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The word here, sin, is not a plural. It's not uh, his sins, but sin. That is the sin of Adam that uh, condemned all of us. Christ died for sins in the plural, and that covered Adam's original sin and all of our sins. In John sixteen eight. He says, second of righteousness, because we aren't righteous. That's the standard. And so we all are unrighteous. There is no one righteous, not even one, the Scripture says, that all of us are sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the standard. The standard is God's essence. The phrase glory of God is is a figure of speech that incorporates all of God's attributes. And nobody measures up. The standard is if your righteousness can be stacked up from here to the moon, then you can get into heaven. But the most righteous person in history can only get his righteousness stacked up to about three centimeters. None of us come close to measuring up, so somebody else has to do it. The standard is God's righteousness and his justice. And at the cross, God is going to impute our sin to Christ. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, not our unrighteous deeds, but all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. 
which actually, if my analogy were correct, nobody has anything to stack up. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that our sin is imputed to Christ, so that when we trust in him, his righteousness then is imputed to us, and we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. What's underneath, under the robes, is still that old sin nature, and it's still our gnarly, nasty, unrighteous self, the old man. But we're clothed in righteousness, and God only looks at us in terms of what our robes of righteousness says. He doesn't look at us anymore as that spiritually dead sinner. He declares us to be righteous, and that's the basis for our salvation, so that because of Christ's righteousness, we can be blessed. The third thing is judgment, and that judgment is related to Satan. Satan is judged at the cross, and it's at the cross where that certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. And when he did that, verse 15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... That's language related to the fallen angels and Satan. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. So the first thing that happens when we are saved is we are made alive again. We're born spiritually dead. We studied that in Ephesians 2.1. It is separation from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18. Nobody is born alive. We are born spiritually dead but physically alive. We are alienated from the life of God. So we must be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. How do we do that? We receive him as Savior. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe and be good. Doesn't say that. Who those who believe and go to church. Doesn't say that. It only says believe. Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, it is only believe that is mentioned. And then we're born. It's not born because of blood, because of whatever genetic lineage we come from. It's not born of the will of the flesh. The flesh is a negative term. It's not because we willed ourselves to be so good. Uh, It's not born of the will of man, but of God. God, we believe God regenerates us. Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, even the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is the issue. It's God's mercy, and he makes us alive again. That's what regeneration means, and it's done through the agency of, uh, excuse me, it is done through the work of God the Holy Spirit who regenerates and renews us. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy again, has begotten us again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the dead. Mercy is the expression of God's grace. So the next thing that happens is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Here, I thought I changed the slide on another one. This, that is wrong. We'll see why that's wrong in a minute. It is never said to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that has so entered into the patois of evangelicalism that you hear it. I've heard three people who ought to know better, including myself, use this in the last week. There is no place in the Scripture where the word baptism is related to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in a genitive case. That's the only way you can use it as of the Spirit. So in the, in the original, there's no such thing as the baptism of the Spirit. But prepositions are fluid things from language to language, and that's why there is so much confusion. So as I stated earlier, we are baptized by means of the Spirit, and that's Matthew 3.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.13. And that passage where we started was, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Our passage in Ephesians 4 says that there is uh, one spirit and there's one body. And that's the same thing that Paul's mentioning here. One spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So this word baptism, now this is an interesting word. I think this is only as far as I'm going to get this morning because this word baptism and is often abused and often not communicated clearly. It isn't translated baptism. It is transliterated as baptism. That means they didn't have the guts to translate it when they were translating it because it was such a divisive issue, so they just anglicized the Greek word baptizo uh, to use that so that it wouldn't commit them to one position or another. And what lies behind that is that in most of the countries that were going through the Reformation, they still had a unity of church and state. The way you entered into citizenship in France or in Germany or in Spain or Italy was the same way you entered into the church. When you were an infant, you were sprinkled. And that act of baptism made you a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the earth. So if you said that wasn't valid, you're committing, you're making a political statement as well and saying that person really isn't a member of the state. Now you're now you have committed treason. That's why it was a death penalty for the Anabaptists uh, because they had confused all the Anabaptists. What made you a Baptist a Baptist is that you believed in separation of church and state, and you believed that baptism was only for believers who had trust, trusted Christ as Savior. So the word baptizo, though, is really interesting. I'm doing a lot of, been doing a lot of reading on this lately, and I have said this, and it's probably not true, that the word baptiz, baptizo comes, or it comes from bapto, but it doesn't have the same meaning as bapto. Bapto is a word, strictly speaking, that means to dip, plunge, or immerse. But I will show you in a minute why baptizo in its core meaning does not bring that over. 
Now that shakes Baptist up, but you just have to stay with me as we understand this. If it always means to be immersed in liquid, you've got a real problem. And that problem is that there are eight different kinds of baptisms in the New Testament. And only three of them are wet. There are five that are dry. There's no immersion in a liquid. So uh, I will give you a quote as we summarize this. So the wet baptisms are John the Baptist baptism down at the Jordan. The second is the baptism of Jesus. It's distinct. John's baptism was for repentance. Jesus had nothing to repent of. His baptism inaugurated his earthly ministry. Third wet baptism is believer's baptism when we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I'm making this statement that there's, there's a difference between bapto and baptizo goes back. The clearest example is from a Greek writer who's writing a recipe for making pickles. His name was Nicander, 200 B.C. He says, first, the vegetable should be dipped into boiling water. He uses the word bapto which means dip, plunge, or immerse. And then second, he says, and then you baptizo the vegetable in a vinegar solution. That's what the, and the importance of that is it changes, that's what changes the vegetable from a cucumber to a pickle. So that the core issue in when they coined this development of the word baptizo, Baptizo, which comes, ultimately it's etymologically based on bapto, but its significance becomes something that is transformed or changed, not, in, not necessarily involving immersion, but something that is transformed or changed by that act of baptism. So then we have dry baptisms, Baptism into Moses. They were baptized, the uh, Israelites coming through the Dead Sea are baptized by means of the cloud and the water. They don't get wet, they're not immersed in the water, and they're not immersed in the cloud, in the fire or the cloud. There's no immersion at all. There's just identification. Second dry baptism is baptism into Noah. The only thing they went into was the ark. They don't get immersed in anything. Those who got immersed in the water died. Then you have the baptism of the cross. There's no water involved anywhere. Christ is identified with our sins on the cross. So the idea, the basic idea is identification. And there's a legal change. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He is not made a sinner, but he receives the legal imputation or judgment for our sin. Fourth, baptism by the Holy Spirit. It's not immersion into Christ. It's identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 
We think of immersion as immersion into liquid. And I've been reading a very lengthy study of baptism written. I don't necessarily think he's right on everything. I'm not going into all the detail. I don't have time to read 1,800 pages on taking apart every use of baptizo and bapto and baptismas and baptisma from the ancient Greeks all the way through uh, the, the first four centuries of the church. Five volumes in fine print, written by a 19th century writer, where he goes on and on and on, has lots of detail, but I don't have that kind of time. But I can catch the gist of what he is saying. And he spends about 10 pages explaining the difference between the Latin word merse, where we get immerse, and showing how that relates to what baptizo actually means, and it doesn't have to do with immersion into something. That's all I'm going to say about that. It's confusing enough for me. I'm not going to confuse you too. Then there's baptism by fire. Again, nobody gets... What, what happens is there's purification. Those of you who are fascinated by Second Peter 3, pay attention to this third one. We'll see this again. So bapto literally means or denotes a dipping, plunging, or immersing of something into a liquid, whereas baptizo suggests a more figurative sense that something is identified by something else to indicate a change. That's its significance. There's one baptism. Is it water baptism or is it the baptism by the Spirit? I believe it is the baptism by the Spirit which is symbolized by the water baptism. The two go together. And that's the purpose of water baptism is because understanding what happens in our death, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is pretty abstract. And so God has given us a concrete symbol in order to teach positional sanctification. Problem is nobody understands what it symbolizes very well, so they never teach that. And nobody learns what they're supposed to learn when they go to a time of ritual Christian baptism because nobody teaches it. Uh, I've always taught that. So that's the purpose of baptism is to understand our new identity in Christ and that we are in the body of Christ and that the power of the sin nature over us has been broken. We still have it. But its power, which was never broken in the Old Testament, has now been broken. So that gets us started in understanding this phrase, baptism by the Spirit, and we'll come back next time, work our way through that and the other ministries of God the Holy Spirit to believers today. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the clarity of your revelation. And, Father, we know it takes us time to understand some of these things. We're often confused by prior prior concepts, prior knowledge, and just the fact that some things are more difficult to understand than others. But we understand that we are united in Christ by his, with his, and identified with his death, burial, and resurrection so that all of that is part of becoming a new creature in Christ. And that's who we are. That's our new identity. Sin nature is broken. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 6. Father, we thank you for...
revealing these things to us and realizing how significant that makes us as members of the body of Christ. Father, we pray for those who are listening, who are here, who may have never understood the gospel, may have never understood that it's not based on what we do, it's based on what Christ did. And all we need to do is rest in him, trust in him, rely upon him, believe he died for us and paid the penalty for our sin, and then we have, as a free gift, eternal life. We thank you for our new life in him. In Christ's name, amen.